Zach Subridio from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with the sponsor, Reed. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up for more than 35 years. Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Servideo here with Boston Speaks Up, and I'm here with SoCo founder Martel Metellus. Hi, Martel. Hey, Zach. How are you today? I'm doing wonderful. It's uh, it's good to connect. Um, we've got our our connection strong now. We we just spent a little time on uh, on behind the scenes, getting our connections all locked and loaded. Now everyone can enjoy us uh, catching up. Um, I'm super grateful to uh, introduce you to the Boston Speaks Up community and sort of the Boston O and Boston community more broadly. Although it seems like in, in pretty short time, you've been doing a good job of that on your own. Um, and I really appreciate, yeah, of course. I really appreciate um, Paris Chandler, um, one of my recent guests from Black Tech Pipeline connecting us and you being so willing to um, take some time out to to speak with, with me today and, and share your story with the community. Um, I know that Soko is enjoying, enjoying some great momentum. Um, and so taking you away from building, working on your baby is, um, is something that I don't, I don't take lightly. So I do really appreciate the time. Of course. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, so I'm just going to read a brief summary and then we can kind of flow into conversation. Martel Metellus is the founder of SoCo, a discovery network for the black community to connect, collaborate, and find new opportunities. Founded in September 2019, SoCo began as a freelance marketplace for black skill workers. Like many great startups, SoCo was created to satisfy the founder's own pain points. Metellus developed SoCo to solve his need of wanting to hire black people to work on his various entrepreneurial ventures, including several fitness endeavors. Metellus moved from Arizona to Boston in 2015 to attend Babson College and play basketball. The budding entrepreneur also has aspirations to become a venture capitalist. He possesses a great combination of humility, ambition, and intellect, which is on full display via his blog, Mind of Martell, in which he opines about topics like, what is blockchain? Metellus is on the verge of introducing the next evolution of the SoCo platform, and listeners and readers can follow along for updates on Twitter at, at join Soko. And I'll include links to join the Soko mailing list in the, uh, in the final, uh, Boston O piece. Great. Um, so Martel, thanks. Thanks again for joining us. Um, you know, in doing my research kind of in pre-podcast questions, um, and, and, and you provided some gracious answers to ahead of time for, um, I was under the impression that, you know, you were an Arizona dude, moved to Boston and then actually discovered that you actually grew up in, in Brooklyn. Um, and even when we were rapping beforehand, uh, sounds like you, you spent a little time back and forth between Brooklyn and Haiti where your parents are from. So, um, yeah. share with, share with us, um, what it was like sort of being born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. And it sounds like you had a really unique upbringing around uh, lots of family. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, um, in the Canarsie area as well as Crown Heights. I kind of went back and forth between the two. Um, and I grew up in the projects of Brooklyn with both my parents constantly working around the clock. Like my mom was uh, a lead phlebotomist over at Long Island College Hospital. My dad was a full-time tailor and he was helping running a shop in downtown Boston. But even before that, you know, I actually spent some time in Haiti. So I lived there for a year um, with both of my parents before we came back to um, Brooklyn. And my dad had pretty much taken some time to stay in Haiti so he could pre pre prepare himself to move over to, to the U.S. full-time. So, you know, it was a very unique upbringing. There was a lot going on. Um, and... I, I kind of spent a lot of time growing up in my grandparents' apartments just because I had plenty of 
had plenty of family around me and my, my parents were constantly working. So that allowed me to kind of just touch up on, on a lot of the family connections that I had. I had cousins coming back and forth. So even though I was an only child, I didn't feel like an only child. I had plenty of family around me to support me. Um, and that kind of made my experience, even living in the projects of Brooklyn, not as bad as someone would think. You know, a lot of kids, when they grow up in those types of environments, they'll tell you they didn't even know that they lived in, you know, the projects. They didn't realize how bad the environment really was because they were surrounded by a lot of families. So that's one thing I will say. That's cool. Um, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, you said in the pre-podcast, questionnaire like ignorance is bliss too but like it, it's almost sounds like more like it's you know happiness comes in all shapes and sizes right not necessarily the size of your home right but like what it's filled with and if your home's filled with family and love and nurture and it sounds i mean you guys probably had some pretty fun big family dinners you know the types of family dinners that people maybe look forward to you know over the holidays each year. It sounds like the Metellus family may have been having on a night, almost a nightly basis, huh? Yeah, we, we, you know, family from all over New York and even family coming from Haiti to visit. And that's the thing too, right? In the Haitian households, a lot of, you know, a lot of Haitian households will come in and they'll all live together under one roof. And that's obviously for economic reasons, um, but also just because we all know each other and, you know, it creates a very unique environment for, for a child growing up. That's wonderful. That must have been hard to leave. Like, what was it like going to Chandler, Arizona? And 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 then just in general, I mean, I'm, I'm sure as a ten, you know, we were about ten years old. Like, it's a, it's exciting to move into a new home. I knew, I spent a good portion of my life in the same home, and I always dreamed about moving into like you know moving out of our little ranch into a big home. You know, like it's it's yeah. exciting, right? But but also, I imagine much different. Um, and I'm curious, just like was it was it multicultural and diverse in, in Chandler? Like how much of a shock was it um, to you at that age? Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I was so excited when my, when my mom told me I was going to move to to Arizona one, I didn't know what Arizona was, but I knew it was going to be somewhere new and being from Brooklyn, I wasn't allowed to go outside and play with friends because you know, there was just a lot of bad influences around me and it just wasn't a place for me to really express myself and be free. So moving to a suburban area like Arizona, I instantly felt free. I was able to go outside, met a bunch of different people. And ironically, it was actually very diverse. Um, you know, I've had friends nice. of all races um, and I've been able to experience many different cultures being in that type of environment. That's great. Yeah. Arizona is a bit of a, a bit of a melting pot. Um, I think I mentioned you like pre-podcast, like my, my wife and I grew up in like Methuen and Lawrence, she grew up in Lawrence and, um, and she, and like her, her father's Puerto Rican, like he's from Puerto Rico, actually originally from Spain and like her, like their family, a lot of their family, like went out to Arizona, um, just just like more land and more space and it was more affordable. And, um, and it, I, I get the sense that it seems that, you know, a, a lot of places out West that pursuit of the manifest destiny for folks is, is um, it's an experience for all sorts of people. And so you end up okay. with pretty diverse cultures out West. So it sounds like you got to experience that, which is great. Um, did you, when did you like fall in love with basketball? Like, were you like playing basketball in Brooklyn and, and, maybe not going out and playing street hoops as much because those influences in Brooklyn. And then it picked up when you moved to Chandler, you know, it's, it's super interesting. And, and this is where my story starts to really turn. I never played sports when I was in Brooklyn. Like I never went outside to play sports, never went to the basketball wow. courts. I had to stay indoors. Cause you know, my, my mom, a Haitian mom and, and people who are listening who are Haitian will know they're super paranoid. So they don't want you to ever go anywhere that they can't see you. So you know, I was very accustomed to staying inside, watching TV, you know, playing video games. So that's kind of what I got into when I moved to Arizona. And I actually didn't get into sport like like competitive sports right away. I started off with skateboarding, weirdly mm -hmm. enough. That was that was the first sport I ever um, tried and, and was actually pretty good at. So that was my first initiation into like the whole active sports realm. And then from there, I believe in eighth grade, that's when I decided to try out for my eighth grade basketball team. And that's where it started. 
Nice. So skateboarding, that's a fun freeing sport that folks people tend to take up skateboarding they move out west you move out to california you move out to arizona you get a skateboard your friends in brooklyn start calling you a hippie um you're just out there cruising on your skateboard enjoying all the all the space but we're all cooped you know we're all cooped up in the city um right so eighth grade basketball team you i mean did you play a little hoop before you went and tried out for the team or were you just naturally an athlete so, so interestingly enough, I had tried out on a women and I had practiced a grand total of three weeks before tryouts and I got cut and I got cut actually the second round of cuts. And I was, I was super depressed about it. I went home and you know, I started crying and my mom was like telling me it's okay. You know, there's going to be other opportunities. So she was very supportive of me and that like lit a fire under me. And, and you know, anyone who knows me knows I'm very competitive. So I started training every day, watching every video of, of my favorite, LeBron, Kobe, KD at the time. Like I was watching all of these people play and I'd train six hours a day. I'd go to like my, my local rec center, Tumbleweed rec center, and I would practice. They'd see me just maniacally just training and just, you know, I was evolving in front of people so quickly. And I got to like my freshman year and I made the team with, with no, with no doubt in mind. And that was a huge shift in my reality, seeing that, you know, all the hard work that I put in in the summer, the scorching heat outside translated to me being able to make my freshman basketball team prior to getting cut from my eighth grade basketball team. Nice. Good for you. So you, you, you're one of those just naturally gifted athletes that, that, that came in out of nowhere and, and created more competition for guys like me that played basketball their whole lives. And, yeah, like, and I practiced a ton, but man, like you, you practice a ton and you're a gifted athlete. Like you realize, yeah, the hard work just, it, it pays off, you know, more and more, um, that repetition and frequency. It's like that in business too. repetition and frequency. It just, it, with good intentions, it, it can get a lot done. Um, so kind of what was, um, so you you went to like the local high school and then at that point, like, you know, you, you kind of playing basketball and other sports and then just like focused on studies like at that, you know, you, you had a kind of an early video gaming sort of interest. Like were you, had you realized yet that you might be interested in um, maybe computer science or, or tech in any ways, or were you just kind of like enjoying high school and like you, it seems like you were probably on a path where, you know, you're, you're, you had a good foundation at home, you know, you're going to do good in high school and you were going to go to college. It just was a matter of where, you know, like what was, what was it like those four years in, in high school? And like, how were you sort of shaped into the, uh, the young man that, you know, eventually went off to Babson? Yeah. And, and honestly, gaming, gaming was my entire life right before high school. Like right before I saw sports, I was playing computer games. That's actually where I learned how to type, where I learned different cool. parts of the computer different software programs. Like I learned that on the fly and I wasn't realizing that I was learning tech at a very young age because I was just enjoying playing, you know, online games and and stuff like that. So, you know, right when I got into high school, that's when I started taking athletics very seriously. My freshman year, I played um, for a few AAU teams, national AAU teams. I was traveling around the, around the country um, playing against some of the, the best players, some of them are, are even in the NBA at this point. So, you know, I, I got to experience that very early and it just helped me propel into a, a much better um, basketball player over time. But I also took academics very, very seriously. Um, that was something that set me apart from a lot of the peers that I had, because most people, especially during that time, they were focused on, okay, I'm going to make it to the NBA. I'm going to do this. I have to go, you know, get a D1 scholarship, which those were my goals as well. But because I was raised a certain way where my mom told me, you know, make sure that your academics are on point because you never know what could happen with your sports career. I took I took academics very seriously and my competitive edge in that showed um, year in and year out. Nice. That's cool. Yeah, I always felt that it gave a it gave a, an edge in life to um, to kind of compete. Um, and even to this day, like during COVID, I miss like you know, playing soccer. I was playing pickup basketball one night a week, every Wednesday I was playing on a BSC soccer team. And, uh, it's something about 
that edge you get is like, you know, working with, working with a team and, and competing, um, that, that kind of helps. It translates well into, into business. Um, and it's cool that you, it, it, it's interesting to hear you talk about the way that you experienced tech through gaming yeah. without realizing you were learning. Like that's actually a lot of the interesting programs that I've learned from interviewing people on this podcast. Like, um, I met this dude, Roman Hackes. Um, he's a, a, an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. He actually lives in my hometown now, Methuen. And mm-hmm. he does, um, he does like a coding, like after school coding, um, camp that's free for young people in Lawrence. And he teaches them how to, um, basically code and create, um, Snapchat lenses cause, cause he's an official Snapchat lens creator. And like, it's like one of the, it, it, it's interesting, like that w- when you're working on something that's like fun and tangible, um, like a game or like a filter in a popular app, like Snapchat, like it's, it's a, it's a much different experience. It's more, it's experience and it's a less like of a tedious sort of job. And what's kind of fun and interesting, um, being the optimist, the optimistic father of a three-year-old right now, like my hope is that like a lot of the, um, a lot of the education for tech will become increasingly like, um, fun and interactive, um, over time, which seems like is the case. I mean, my mother-in-law who was a teacher in Lawrence public schools forever, she taught, um, she taught Spanish and she, she just gave our three-year-old like a, a specific, uh, Amazon tablet device that I was messing around with our daughter last night. That's like super compelling, like puzzle games and whatnot. Like it's all just like really good, like learning, um, games on a tablet. And it's like, wow, like this is, this is all happening. This, this big social experiment of tech is kind of infiltrating, um, lives at, at earlier and earlier ages. Um, so I guess, yeah. So, so kind of a bit of a bit of a tangent, I think, but I think it's all kind of, um, relative related to sort of what you're now doing and kind of like, what you're what you're aiming to do increasingly with soco which is like identifying um folks from underrepresented communities certainly people of color that that can kind of relate and connect to people through tech and then and then on the other side kind of find pathways to um employment and and with companies that as you put well in the pre-podcast questionnaire don't just need a chief diversity officer to solve diversity, like literally need to like fundamentally change their hiring practices and, and, um, and, and intentionally focus on, you know, hiring more, um, more multicultural workforce from the ground up. So it, we're going to get into SoCo more soon, but talk, talk to, talk to me, talk to listeners about like what, you know, how you came to, um, Babson college, which, um, is it, is it, is it incredible, um, you know, undergrad business school, like a rare type of, of undergrad school that's really, you know, focused on, on training young sort of business leaders and, and the, the various endeavors that you pursued and then how you start started to kind of evolve into, um, you know, founding SoCo. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it all kind of started with my intentions, right? So when I was in when I was in high school, about my sophomore year, I told myself I wanted to pursue aerospace engineering. That was my number one career path that I saw for myself, mostly because when I was in, in pre-K, my um, my teacher would always say, Martel, you're going to be an astronaut. And I was like, I am. So that stuck in my head for a while. And then when I got to high school, I started taking a lot of you know AP Calc. Um, I took physics and that started catching my interest. So I was like, Hey, I kind of like engineering too. So why don't I bring both of those together? And I was always on Glassdoor looking up salaries, even in high school. And I was like, man, this may be a good career for me. So that was kind of what I, I followed through with until obviously playing basketball. It took me to a UPenn elite camp that I was invited to. And I did really well. And I, I gained a lot of interest from, from primarily division three schools because that's who was recruiting at that area. Um, and a few D2 schools as well. So from there, I started getting contacted by a lot of different coaches 
Babson stood out to me. Um, I didn't actually know much about entrepreneurship, to be honest. I, I thought about it as just a job and I looked it up on Glassdoor and I was like, this is not a, a career I would want to do. So, you know, getting more education, my uncle had lived in Boston for a little bit, worked there. And he told me Babson would be an amazing school. He was actually the, the crucial decision maker for me in terms of what school I would go to because I trusted his insight. He's one of the most successful people in my family. So, you know, he spoke to my mom, the coaches spoke to my parents and Babson ended up giving me the best um, financial package for myself to go play there as well as to go, go um, to school there. And so it was between Babson, NYU, um, Wesleyan University. Um, then I had uh, University of Chicago and I just chose Babson out of the whim and I didn't even know much better. I just thought that, Oh, this would probably be a good opportunity and let's just try it out. And I haven't been to Boston, so why not? Love it. That's cool. And then what would you think when you first came? Um, I mean, when you obviously Babson, it's not like, it's like right in the city, but you realize Boston is super small. So like a lot of Boston is actually like greater Boston, like around the city. Um, but yeah, what were your, your initial thoughts? Like, did you feel like, you know, were you reaffirmed in your decision? Just like when you got here, like just kind of getting a sense of the culture and things, but like, just, just kind of speak freely. Like what, what was it like that first, those first few weeks here? Yeah, I, I loved it. Um, even when I visited, so, so I had gotten flown out a few times for basketball just to visit the school and I met, some key, you know, black students down there that, that basically made it feel like home to me. And, and I got so connected with them. I was like, there's no reason why I wouldn't go to this school. So when I officially went there um, during that fall of 2015, I, I immediately just loved it. Cause one, I, I was looking forward to having a college experience, being away from home. Um, I was looking forward to being in a new city like Boston. And, you know, we would go out to you know Harvard and, you know, there are all these different, cause Boston's a college town, so it's there are all these different schools that we were able to go to and just experience their cultures, experience um, the environment, and it just was incredible from day one. That's so cool. Um, yeah, I don't really hear people that come to go to like school and discover Boston that don't that don't kind of fall in love in in, in the beginning, um, and oftentimes stay in love for in perpetuity. Um, it seems like you're loving it still. Uh, but, but let's, before we get all the way to the present, um, talk about the, like you had some fitness endeavors you did in, in college. Like it's yeah some different ones too. Like it was really, I mean, it was cool to hear you describe it, like, you know, match, you know, connecting, um, you know, tr- you know, sort of student sort of fitness trainers with, with fellow students and, and, and that sort of like, that sort of matchmaking sort of process. And then you personally like working with, um, a, a multitude or sort of various, um, set of, of sort of leaders. I think you mentioned at one point you even work with, you know, training folks from like fortune 500 companies. Um, ob- you know, for obvious reasons, I think as, as sort of a, you know, a basketball player and someone who's had to, you know, be fit to, to, to sort of compete, um, fitness was obviously a, a focus for you, but, what is it that sort of spurred you to, to create um, entrepreneurial endeavors in fitness and, and kind of, yeah, if you could kind of share some highlights of some of those endeavors. Cause I think what's interesting too about those endeavors is that that's where you started to realize, Oh, wow, I'm, I'm building something here and I need help. And mm-hmm. you know, you, 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 you could have used SoCo, um, but it didn't yet exist. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, the, so, so SoCo is sort of, origin story kind of starts while you were working on those fitness endeavors in college, if, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yeah. Um, yeah. even so, so I, I started off in fitness after I stopped playing basketball my freshman year, um, just because of academics, the academics are very rigorous at Babson and I wasn't used to taking all the accounting classes, financial management classes. And I wanted to just focus on school because I saw a brighter future there. So when I stopped playing basketball, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of bored now. I need, I need something to keep my mind busy. I'm very competitive. And so I started working out and I started really liking it. And I liked seeing the progress that I was making. And I just learned so much about it that I got to a point where I was like, you know what? I could make some money here because in school, especially in college, the jobs that you're, you're going to have on campus aren't going to be paying you as much. Obviously, as a college student, it's, it's good. But I had greater visions for how much I could make. So I was like, you know what? 
let me get this this personal training certification. So I went and got the, the, the top one. And then I interviewed over at Boston Sports Club, like right down the hill from our school. And they hired me and I started training people there nice. and students started seeing me do that. And they started asking me, Hey, can you train me? So an idea popped up in my head and I was like, Hey, if I got this certification and I was able to go to Boston sports club and train people there, why can't students be able to get certified and train other students? So that's where up right. came around. And, you know, I, I started that platform with uh, a friend of mine at the time that was actually from Pakistan. And, you know, he had a lot of connections with engineers, um, capital, but, you know, things just didn't work out because that was my first ever venture that I did. I didn't understand what product design was. I didn't understand what a pre-launch was. I didn't understand what user acquisition was. So mm -hmm. I was kind of just in, in the open figuring things out. And I learned a lot throughout the process. I learned about partnerships. I learned about how, how a co-founder relationships should be. And, you know, that was one of the start of, of many different endeavors that I would do, especially in the fitness industry. Cool. So, so then you did four, four years, four years at Babson. Um, and so Upfit so, uh, sounds like one of the, the ventures that took off enough that you were like in a position where you could, you could benefit from some help, even just like, you know, like part-time help. Um, at what point did you did sort of the, the, the seed for SoCo kind of get planted in your mind and you start to kind of hedge ahead into that, into that new venture? Um, was that yeah. before you graduated or was that like upon graduation? Oh, that you was graduated like 2019. So it's, it's pretty, pretty close to present. Yeah. It, it literally was right after graduation only because I was in the fitness industry for, for many years as a trainer. And I had, I had trained people at Equinox in San Francisco and I built a, a, a strong following and a name for myself in that industry. So I thought that was going to be my career for a very long time. And I had had my own personal training company where, as you mentioned before, I was training fortune 500 executives, um, you know, investors, entrepreneurs. And I just got to a point where I was like, Hey, I want to get into tech, like the actual tech side. So I started working at this, this IT company. Um, or this IT computer software company doing business development. And from there, I was like, man, I, I want to start some side hustles or some side projects. I want to build a startup, but I want to hire people who look like me or work with people who look like me. And I had done a lot of networking in Boston. It was just very hard to find people who look like me. So I was like, you know what? I want to create a platform for people to be able to sell their skills who are, you know, black people. And, and, you know, that's where Soko came about. And I, I had actually built the MVP and everything and it was up and live and, you know, but I had stopped it after a little while just because there was no momentum. And again, I didn't understand the dynamics of, of startups. I, I still had to go back to the drawing board and, and learn about all of the concepts that would eventually get to, to where I am now. Uh, so, so let's talk about, um, well, actually a follow-up question there. I mean, what for you, as a, as a, as a black man, as a, as a, as a Haitian American, um, what is it like, as it, was it pretty clear to you network? It was, it sounds like it was clear to you, like networking in Boston tech, like it was it over indexed on white and, yeah. and did in for, was it for reasons that you felt, you know, what are the reasons why you not necessarily preferred, but, yearned to collaborate with more people of color? Yes. Um, that definitely was the number one reason why I wanted to do that just because I had not, and, and coming from Babson, your network is very strong. You know, a lot of the people I knew who were successful were all white. I didn't know many b successful black people yeah. and it kind of troubled me because I was like, you know, how do I not know someone who looks like me at the top level? And yeah. how come I can't have access to those people as easy as I would with, you know, white people who are successful. So that sparked Soko and, and, and made me really think about the direction I wanted to take with the startup that I'd build. Yeah. So let's talk about like the last, um, you know, few months and mm -hmm. I guess let's, you know, specifically George Floyd's murder at the, at the, at the hands of, uh, 
of, of, a, of an imbecile of a police officer. Um, that obviously restoked, further stoked the the fire of the Black Lives Matter movement, and um, has stoked the fire, I think, in hearts and minds of entrepreneurs. Um, I think from from all of all colors in in, in recent months. How is that? personally stoked your entrepreneurial drive and and then how is how is it sort of you know restoke the fire of, of soco and and the recent moment, momentum that 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 you're enjoying yeah um i mean to to be honest with you it was and police brutality is something that that has been evident for for years and years and years and for some reason from for myself i, I always looked at the the nice utopian tech side and you know building mm-hmm. all the cool stuff like that's what i really wanted to get into but once george floyd's death occurred and i yeah. saw that i literally just broke down crying like I, I didn't understand you know why we were being persecuted the way we we were and like i was just trying to figure things out for myself and that's where i had this new purpose come in where you know i need to start helping people who look like me like i understand i can right. create something for everybody but my community literally has a need that needs to be filled. And I have the solution for that in my head. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was a very emotional journey. And, and I, I got to the point where I was like, you know, at this point in time, I have no interest in doing anything, but, you know, uplifting my own community. And, and Soko came about, uh, through those emotions. Uh, and, and I just, the, the fire that lit under me, I, I can't even explain it. It's still up. It's still crazy today. Yeah. Um, but you know, that, that's really what sparked everything for me. Yeah. Well, can, and can you speak a little bit, uh, about what, what you've been doing with SoCo sent like what, like where, where you're at right now, like what the, what the platform originally was and kind of what it yeah. is, what it is becoming. Yeah. So, so in the beginning it was, it was basically a fiver for, for black freelancers to be able to sell their skills to, you know, other businesses, not even just black, black businesses or, or black entrepreneurs, but anybody just giving them more opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I think that was more of a passive route for me to go. Even the, the, the wording that I said in the website was, you know, POC and, and colored professional. And, you know, I, I got to a point, I was actually speaking with, with Paris about it. I was like, Hey, like, how should I frame this? And she's like, be unapologetic. And that's where, you know, when George Floyd's death happened, I literally became unapologetic. I was like, you know what? No, this is for black people. Like this is a platform that connects black people together and allows for them to, you know, find opportunities. And that's where I started building in the, the, the framework of how I'd want it to be done, how I differentiated from all of the other social networks out there and it became this discovery network that you know black the black community could use to connect collaborate and find new opportunities that's great and and right now when like like if i'm a if i'm a if i'm a if i'm a black person in in boston or beyond and i'm listening to this podcast like what can my experience be with soco today yeah so when the when the product comes out, which we're, we're actually planning on launching in the next three weeks. But, um, when it comes out, it will be something where you, if, if you're a black professional and you're in an area, you can find someone who looks like you. And if you really need somebody who does the same type of, of role or has the same type of title as you, you can find that within a click of a button. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's the, to the extent of an impact I want this to initially make so that everyone discoverability becomes super easy. Whereas we've never had something like that before. Interesting. So, I mean, if we could geek, not necessarily geek out, but go a little bit into like the tech or how you're kind of producing, developing that product. Are you, are you able to scrape off of LinkedIn? Like how are you populating and kind of creating that initial database of um, black people in business um, through which, you know, new younger folks can maybe come into the platform. And, and am I even saying this right? Like, is the idea you, you're a good, your, your platform, well, there's some other benefits I want to talk about aspirationally, like connecting into employment too, but just simply, I love this initial focus, um, of, it seems like helping maybe, 
younger or, or perhaps people have been, you know, left behind, let's say like they could be in their twenties, they could be in their thirties and have not, not yet been exposed to tech, but we're in an increasingly tech driven global labor market. And SoCo can be the conduit through which they find a peer or a mentor, um, yeah. to kind of match up with and just connect with and relate to and learn from, and then be inspired with confidence to go and seek a new pathway. Yeah. I mean that, so in terms of your initial question, we, we aren't looking to, you know, populate data from other sites only because to be honest with you, many black people don't use LinkedIn and and I've I've spoken with so many and they, they say they don't like it. And a lot, I found a lot, they use Twitter and I found a lot, they use Instagram and Facebook. So we're, we're more so moving to the extent, and, and as you've seen over the last few weeks, it's it's been just word of mouth and just me connecting personally with as many people as I can right. and having them refer other people and just building the email list so that once the product launches, I want to have at least a thousand people already on the platform engaging with each other. That's, like, that's the impact I want to have right away. And, and it goes beyond just black professionals, right? It goes to, and when I say black professionals, I mean, you know, creators, entrepreneurs, even corporate executives. And it doesn't matter the age, just if you're trying to connect with your community, this will be the place for it. And even if you're a black business, your discoverability will be even greater being listed on this platform. So it serves a lot of different purposes right off the bat. Yeah, that's great. I know one of the things you said, you already acknowledged this um, in the pre-podcast Q&A, but it seems like you are like, yeah, just... it's so, it's so huge and so mindful of you to, um, be taking your time with the product. And, you know, it's, there's been a, I've noticed it, um, the attention around Soko and you like on Twitter in particular, where I've noticed it, like everyone's eager to see the platform and the product. And I think it's, um, you know, kudos to you for taking the time to be diligent and, and, and only bring out the product and the platform when, you feel like that initial sort of minimum viable product is like really, really um, ironclad for everyone to benefit from. And just like, it would be great to to share this podcast in you know, a week's time and kind of, you know, share with more folks, Hey, get on the mailing list. And, you know, it, whether it's, if it ends up being three weeks or if it ends up being, you know, six weeks from now. Um, I think it's, it's, it's important that you, it sounds like, you know, for some, for someone who acknowledges that you're, you know, you're, you're catching up to learn, you know, learn all the bits and pieces like running a business. Um, one of the, one of the important lessons I've learned over almost 15 years of kind of advising tech companies is the value of, uh, of, of, introducing a product when you're, when it, when you're ready to deliver against its value proposition promise. And it, and it sounds like, that, it sounds like that you're doing that. So sorry for the long monologue on that there, but I just, I, I noticed that in your, in the pre-podcast answer you provided and, and I wanted to applaud it and, and, and uh, whenever the platform is ready, certainly will help um, from this end as much as I can kind of like push, push that out and, and, you know, certainly resurface the, um, you know, the podcast to the community. So folks know, like now's the time to go benefit from this, this platform that can kind of help create some buoyancy and, and kind of, you know, create that, you know, rising tide to lift all, all, all the boats of, um, you know, inspired sort of, you know, black and brown people of Boston and beyond to kind of, um, lift each other up, um, and, and take the tech, take the tech community by storm. Like, like we need some fresh, you know, like we need some fresh energy and some fresh blood and, and, um, and, and more diversity. So, um, I love that. And then, and then if I could kind of just dial, like kind of follow that up with, with like a a comment and kind of like, see if you want to riff off, off it anymore. I particularly loved that you, um, that you kind of called out companies for just like opting to fill like a chief diversity officer role yeah. with a black body, as opposed to doing like true, like bottom up hard work, like, like, um, cultural change. Um, do you, I mean, is that just, I mean, is that something that you and your, you know, your peers in the black tech community, like if you're talking to Paris Chandler, like, is that these, you know, common things that you guys, you know, bring up, 
Um, because I, it, it, as a white dude, um, it does seem to me that is a problem. Like it does seem like the, you know, the, the, from the top down, like there's chief diversity officers. It seems there's like, there's corporate social responsibility, right? There's CSR like initiatives. There's like, there's commitments of dollars to programs and there's, you know, oftentimes I would say like distasteful celebration of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, when the reality is <laughs> like I talked about with Paris, the actual like culture not only is on, is white, but when the, the few token black people end up in that culture, they're not necessarily, um, they don't feel the most comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, you know, that, so one thing I love about meeting young leaders like you in Paris is like, it seems like you might like flip the script on, like on the, on the ecosystem, like, like everyone else, like you give what make everyone else uncomfortable for once. Like, you know, like that's that's what I get from Paris. Like, like, let's just like, let's totally flip this. Take the room on the head. Yeah, there you go. So I don't, I mean, if you want to speak, speak to that a little bit, but I just thought that was a really good, that's just a really good point. And um, it, it speaks to like the, um, you know, the advice that maybe, you know, that Paris gave you and maybe, you know, it seems like you two are like two figureheads in a growing sort of movement of young leaders that support each other and being like, listen, like, don't be ashamed to speak your mind and to call bullshit on things that are actually perpetuating the problems of our day. And I think the chief diversity officer is like a big masquerade for, 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 for elongating the problem and not, and not, and it's, and it's, but a minor bandaid fix and not nearly close to a, a solution. Um, like what a SoCo and a black tech pipeline, you know, can really offer the community, but also the, um, the businesses and the employers of the community. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even based on what you said, when I when I had posted, so I had originally posted that on LinkedIn, and it went viral. Like so many really? people, even executives at my company were looking at it, saying, "Wow, we didn't know." Because the thing is, I could say that, but for me to actually provide data showing that out of all of the top tech companies, only two of them had one chief diversity officer, right, and no other black person in any other executive title. Like it's yeah. the most insulting stat to ever look at. Yeah. Like when I saw that, I was like, no, there's no way. And I, I looked into it further and I was like, this is really true. Like there yeah. are no other black executives at these companies, but just the token chief diversity title where yeah. my comment was, you should, you should be striving to have everybody be diverse, not just have one person be the, the vocal point of, of your entire company. Like right. I think the chief diversity title is kind of overplayed now and it's becoming almost like a, uh, uh, almost like a, like a push off. Like, okay, we have a chief diversity officer. We're good now. We're a diverse company. Like absolutely not. Right. Because even from my experience, I go into a company and I don't see anybody who looks like me at the executive level. I'm immediately going to feel like, well, where am I going to be? Right. Like wh- who am I going to be? Who am I going to talk to about certain issues that a lot of white people wouldn't understand? And it just, it it doesn't work in terms of the bottom line as well as the top line. And that's why I always preach like higher, higher, Mm -hmm. right? Higher, 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 higher positions um, to be able to be mentors and be attractive uh, figures for young black talent, because now we're more conscious. Now I'll tell you if, if, if a black person or a black, a young black professional is interviewing for a company, the first thing they're going to ask is, okay, how diverse is your company? What equity, what kind of equity stakes have you, have you put out? And what I mean by equity is not a percentage of the company, but a level of authority that someone like me or someone who looks like me would have within a company. And, you know, with, with black talent, like your voice. Yeah. Like black talent being that much more conscious about it, it's going to now put pressure on companies to say, okay, we need to restructure how we, looked at the entire chain of our executive line. Like we don't have not one black person here, but we claim we're diverse because we have many different, you know, uh, European, because, you know, in Europe, there are many different nations, right? But black people aren't represented, but then you can call yourself diverse. So those are the types of things that I I call out because it, it shows. And, you know, we just need more of us there because we provide the insight 
right? And we're, we're, we're being hired left and right for low-level, entry-level positions, but we have people who are qualified to be CTOs, to be CFOs, and who've done so great in Fortune 500 companies that still won't get hired by some companies because they're black. Yeah. How do, what do you do? Like, what, like what's, what, how do you, what's the most effective way that you've come up with thus far to go and talk to an employer that meets that, that fits that description of, you know, let's say a company with at least a hundred employees, maybe a chief diversity. Let's say they have a chief diversity officer and one other, one other black person. Mm -hmm. Uh, What, like, what do you think it is going to take, you know, to, you know, to, to require those companies and those HR departments and the, the hiring professionals that exist, right? Cause there's so many layers to this, right? Mm-hmm. Between, between talent and, and jobs, there's, it's such a racket. I actually can't stand the mm-hmm. business. Um, we, we, we could take a conversation offline. I think I, I have some, I would love to, um, I would love to help. I think, I think SoCo could potentially position as a recruitment, as a recruitment firm and with some, with some early successes under its belt, like maybe outflank some of the tired recruitment firms that exist. And it just so happens that your talent is people of color. Great. It doesn't matter that they're people of color. It matters that they're fucking awesome and they're really good at their jobs. Um, But what do you, yeah. Like what's it like having those conversations with employers? I know that, um, I know that you and Paris talk a lot and there's like great, a great complimentary nature to your two businesses. And, and, a, and even when I talk to like one of her mentors, David Delmar Santia is a Brazilian coders. Like the issue is not the, the um, demand of, of, of people of color to, you know, work in better jobs in tech, right? There's plenty of, there's actually plenty, like as you found right now, as you're building up your list, you'll hit a thousand, you'll hit right, 10,000 by the end of the year. The, the issue is the supply of jobs. That's the issue. Um, and it's the common issue that, you know, like, resilient coders brings up. It's the same thing. Angela Liu from hack diversity brings up, um, what's the approach and, and is it like going to take like a consortium of like resilient coders, hack diversity, SoCo black tech pipeline, and, and a bunch of organizations coming together and like creating like a, like a, like a consort that, that, you know, gets a few of the bigger companies like the trip advisors and the wayfarers to agree to standards, you know, that to hit by 2022 and then like uh, sort of holding their feet to the fire, like as uh, quarter over quarter to make sure that they're pushing towards those standards. Like, you know, what are the, what dominoes need to fall beyond like, you know, George Floyd and, and black lives matter. Like what dominoes need to fall specifically in Boston to like really hit the hit like another acceleration button. See, and, and it's very interesting you say that because the last thing I would want is for this to be a quota run. And what I mean by that is we right. need to hire 10 black people by X amount. No, 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 no. Right. Take a human approach. Like be human. Don't, don't be a robot. Like genuinely look at your company and say, I want to hire someone who's black. But if they come into this company, they might not feel included. The culture may not be something that they're used to and they don't have anybody to relate to. We need to start... And, and that's where my, my slogan, higher, higher, you have to start at the top. You have to start at who those decision makers are and mm-hmm. add to that. And okay, let's say your executive team is full. You don't have anybody who would step down and not saying that anybody should, because that was the decision you made when you started the company, but you have those managerial positions, right? And you have all of these like mid tier positions that need filling that are mentor like positions, right? Like if I had, if I have a sales manager that's black, best believe I'm going to perform better because I have someone who looks like me. I have someone who I can relate to. I have a better relationship with them. Right. And that, that's kind of, and and that will, that in itself will attract the talent. You don't need an all-star recruiter to go find black people, your company and the way that they're structured and the culture that they have will attract the talent. And this goes for SoCo, like even for myself, 
the, the company that I'm creating now is attracting a lot of talent because of the ethos that's behind it, be, because of the, the, the culture that I'm trying to build within that. So it the goes purpose. the same with a, a, a huge company. Yes, you, you, may have, you may have opportunities to be able to hire at lower levels, but touching those top levels, those senior VPs, VP levels, where you can add titles, those are the best places to now inject black talent because those people will then bring in more talent for you. So mm. even using your, your employees as talent acquisition specialists. Yeah. So the upper manager, so, so infiltrate the upper management. It's like yeah. the VPs, SVPs, like the, basically director to SVP level. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so is that an area, um, so do you feel like if that's the best path forward, like, are you finding yourself particularly inclined to, I, you know, just learning and identifying those, you know, you mentioned earlier, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, potential black CTOs out in Boston mm-hmm. that, that could be CTOs of companies. So are you, are you trying to kind of almost personally or with a group, like, are you trying to curate some of that, like upper level management that maybe not, maybe in some cases C-suite, maybe SVP, maybe VP mm-hmm. director. Are you, are you looking to have a strong, um, consolidation of, of, uh, and, and, and decent breadth of talent that, that kind of can go and then go. And is that what you're going to companies with? Like, Hey, like these are like super tech, like, and it, and is it like, they just so happen to be people, of color, but yeah. they happen to be black, but they're like, like they're good quantifiably speaking their resume and their skill set, like, and their, and their soft skills, like they are great. And, um, and so is that kind of, so is that kind of your approach? And then, and then obviously, you know, like, as you, as you outlined, like it, it it then kind of breeds an environment where, where they can kind of hire and staff up sort of teams and, 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 and evolve a culture, um, from there. You hit the nail right on that on the head with that. Like that's exactly the approach because, and like you were saying, okay, yes, you're black, but that's not the reason why you're going to get hired. It's because you're really good at what you do, and and that's the case for a lot of a lot of things, right? So for me, my my biggest goal is, especially with Soko, is to be able to, like you said, curate a lot of these black executives that are looking for, for roles in tech that they could fill, you know, they, they have experience working with some of the bigger companies and bringing those in on this platform, allowing them to even mentor some of the younger black kids um, who join this platform, who are looking to excel in their careers. So that will be in the, in the roadmap as well so that I can kind of foster a community where, okay, we have these black mentors, who are now very good at what they do. And now I can go to these companies and say, okay, you're looking to hire, okay, this, this black person, you know, a black CTO, black CFO, okay, you need a black VP of sales. Well, we have all of that for you. And now we have a search tool for you to find that within the click of a button, right? So that's the approach yeah. I want to take with, with the entire talent acquisition piece. And I don't like saying recruitment because I feel yeah. like that work has been, been tainted, but talent acquisition, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tainted by just mediocre professionals that suck at their jobs. Um, I can't, I can't say, I, I can't find good recruiters. Like I feel like in recruiters out there who are good at your jobs, prove me otherwise, but I don't know. I'm 15 years strong. haven't, haven't found a good one. Um, so and that's on both sides of the aisle, whether I need one or like if, if I personally need one, like to find a job or, or, you know, to test waters or to, to see if, um, you know, they can help me hire people. It's just like, it's such an underwhelming sector. Um, so yeah, talent, talent development, talent acquisition, I think is a good, good way to put it. Um, sorry, recruiters, truth hurts. That's what podcasts are for. Um, speak truths. Uh, truth to market. Let's talk about, it's a nice segue actually from your mindset on sort of middle upper infiltration is important. Like the the VP SVP levels, as we just discussed, like I think 
in a, now it makes a lot even more sense to me. It made sense to me when you first like kind of alluded to your venture capitalist aspirations mm-hmm. because if for the reasons like you could invest, you can invest in more um, people that look like you. Um, mm-hmm. But it seems like, can you speak a little bit about like longer term and how you personally want to be a VC and why, but then also like if you could just speak at all to your interactions with the VC community and how perhaps that's maybe informed why you want to be a VC, like, cause there's certainly some, some noticeable gaps uh, that exist to, to put it, to put it extremely mildly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so honestly for me, it, it, it was a goal of mine for a very long time to want to be a VC. And there are many reasons to that. The first reason, you know, with someone growing up in Brooklyn and, and, you know, seeing the people that, that were older than me and seeing the goals of, of young black kids. I mean, now obviously you're starting to see things change, you know, you know, young black talent, they're, they're starting to look at other avenues, but there was a point and it still is that point where, you know, you either are a rapper, you're, an athlete, or you sell drugs. Those are the three opportunities that a lot of black kids in inner city see as their only opportunities to succeed. And unfortunately, yeah, we do have, you know, CTOs, we have all these black executives, but they don't have social media presence, right? They don't have, they don't have a presence where these young black kids can see them grow and see them flourish. And for me being a VC, I just want to, again, shake the room and say, look, I'm black. I'm a VC. I'm cool. Like we, we, we relate with each other. Look at what I'm doing. Look at how much money I'm able to make based on the the occupation that I have or the career path that I've, that I've had, which obviously money talks when kids see that they're like, Oh, I want to be that. So I want to be that figure where, you know, young black kids can say, I want to be a VC. How did he do that? Look into the story and say, Oh, he built a company. I want to build a company. So then that leads to my next point where Now I'm a VC, I have influence within a firm or I even have my own firm and I'm able to invest in these young black kids from inner city areas, urban, suburban, wherever they are in whatever idea they have and develop them as I go, right? Like that's, those two things are my biggest goals. One is perception of what success is and the second is having access to resources that they wouldn't have otherwise. Those are the two problems that I want to solve which is why I want to be a VC so bad. That's great. And, and, and I, for the greater good, I hope that it, I, I hope that it, it happens. Um, what have your interactions been like with VCs in Boston? Have you had much VC talks? Is it too early for SoCo? Um, I've had a few talks. I've tabled them for now just because I, I kind of understand the nature of, making sure you have a product, making sure you have the users before you go get capital, just because of the the way that, you know, the, the financials work for that. But for me, when I've spoken with a lot of VCs, I've had great conversations with them. Um, I think because of how I carry myself, like, you know, there's a different take on who I am as a person. So they, they kind of feel comfortable speaking with me, but you know, I'm, I'm sure if, if I, if I portrayed myself a certain way, that they expect for me to, to look like or, or to act like, it probably would be a very different conversation. So, you know, I've, I've had good conversations, but I do know of a lot of, you know, black entrepreneurs who haven't had good conversations with VCs, who've had discriminatory conversations with VCs. And, you know, that that is very unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say like, it, well, Diversity is a big issue. I think you, you gave the same grade, by the way, as uh, Angela Liu from Hack Diversity. Yeah. She gave Boston a grade a D. You gave a grade a D. I think Boston's got a long way to go. Um, the good thing is, like, a fair amount of the people that I meet, certainly in the you know, VC world, like, they're... I meet a lot of wonderful people. One of the reasons I loved... I, I enjoyed um, kind of reacclimating to Boston after, like, five years out in L.A., um, is there is a certain sense of um, camaraderie that comes with being a Bostonian. And I think that that um, generally speaking, I think that that crosses um, cultural lines. And so my hope is that like, I I feel that the embrace of um, for SoCo 
and for for black tech pipeline like it has been for resilient coders and hack diversity is is going to be um it's going to be a warm embrace and so i'm i'm excited for the future i think there's a lot of open minds um to sort of uh help foster and facilitate a more a more diverse future moving forward so and, and that's and, and and that's the way we got to look at it right because i mean you I think the, I think you have to be realistic and be provocative like you have been and also like be optimistic because, um, you want to, you want, you know, you want to attract like-minded optimistic folk to, to sort of, to improve things. Um, so as we're kind of getting towards the end of our conversation here, I was curious, like where, so where are you held up in Boston these days during COVID? Where, where's, what part of the city's home? So right now I'm in Somerville. Um, which is very quiet, very peaceful. Um, I, I like where I'm at. Obviously, we have to stay inside. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's good timing for me, though, being in Boston, just because of, you know, being around certain things that, you know, much like resilient coders, much like Black Tech Pipeline, there's like this rising movement in Boston that I'm noticing um, for stuff like this. So, you know, it's keeping me locked in. It's, it's allowing for me to focus a lot more. And yeah, it's great. Nice. Where um where in summer I used to live in Somerville on Highland Ave. Right out of okay. Yes, I live in Porter Square. Oh nice. Oh man. I used to go play hoop not too far from Porter Square at one of those little schools at yeah. Double Court. I used to have cons yeah. back yeah. in I, I live right next to there. Nice. Yeah. I imagine you're right, but yeah, we know I know what you're talking about. Um and then you're just so you can just you're in Porter, and then you just got that drag right right down into Davis too. Although nothing's open right now. One of my favorite restaurants is uh, in bars to just go to is uh, Highland Kitchen. Mm-hmm. I, I miss I miss that area. Well, post COVID, um, I'd love to take a trip down memory lane. We can catch up in real life. Have, have yeah. a have a beer in Somerville. My, yeah, uh, I would love to. Yeah, my. Um, speaking of like a mod, like a, like a fun sort of packed living situation. I lived, I had an apartment in, in Somerville. That was a four bedroom that we, we converted to a five bedroom, one bath that nine different friends lived at over the course of seven years. And then also my sister. Uh, and, uh, yeah, those, those friends, they were like, they were like the cousins you grew up with. Right. right. They're, like, they're like, they're like siblings now. Once you live on top of people for, for, for a little bit, you, you get real close. Yeah, uh, true. So being a, uh, original Brooklynite, are you, uh, are you a Nets fan or a Knicks fan? Oh man. Here we go with that. Can we, and, can, and, can we, and we can't convert you to Celtics, right? Is that just out of the question? Um, I'm, I'm more of a player liker. Like, so I, I enjoy, like my favorite player is KD. So okay. obviously right now I'm following the Nets. Um, which that means you have to put up with Kyrie. Yeah, see, that's the other issue. My favorite point guard is Damian Lillard. So, you know, I, 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 in terms of basketball, I don't have a favorite team, but I do have select favorite players that I follow. Cool. Uh, th- Jalen Brown's been pretty um, mature. Oh, and yeah. Broken during the um, – during COVID and, and with, um, you know, going down to Atlanta to lead, lead some protests. Um, I just have fallen more in love with him just as like a human. And, and therefore like, I mean, I'll, I'm similar to you. Like, I mean, I'm, I root, I, I root for my home teams, but I also root for certain athletes that are like good humans. And mm-hmm. it's nice. Like you, you've seen Jalen Brown emerge as like a really, um, a really woke dude. <laughs> oh Yeah. Him and, and Spencer Dinwiddie, that's another yeah. guy I follow a yeah. lot. He's, he's very, very intelligent. Nice. I'll have, to, I'll have to check out a little more. Um, and I love that. You know, I, I would watch a whole network of television that is just the interv- interviews with athletes. You know, like a B-roll. You, right? Yeah. Like, I would watch just like Spencer Dinwiddie just interviewed for an hour by a bunch of journalists. Like I would Or even watch. their day in the life. Their day in the life yeah. I enjoy watching. Yeah, like I, I'm so I, I'm the dude who watches um, like sports, and I'm on I'm on my phone the whole like I'm Wikipediaing everyone, and I'm like, where'd they grow up? 
You know, I'm like doing my boss speaks up like list of questions through their Wikipedia. Where'd they grow up? How many siblings did they have? Like, what was their upbringing like? Like, who is this human that, you know, is like playing super hard, like takes their defense super seriously. Mm-hmm. I love the way they play, you know? Um, that's cool. Um, I'm a huge Celtics fan. I'm pretty excited for uh, the bubble. But in, in, in a similar way, in a similar vein to what we were just discussing, I, I'm finding the all the stuff off the court and the bubble to be almost more interesting than the game right now. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Even just the, the podcast that these players are now hosting. Yeah. You know, I was watching like I Am Athlete um, yeah. on YouTube. Like they're just, they're having really good conversations. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, before we go, like, um, so want to just share like a couple ways for like, what are good ways for folks to get in touch with, with you and, 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 sort of the, you know, join the SoCo movement? Yeah. Um, I'm very active on Twitter. So, you know, go on there, follow me. My, my name is at Martel Metellus, no spaces. Um, you can DM me any questions. I'm really open to having a, an open conversation with anybody. I've spoken with dozens of people and I just, I love speaking with people who are interested in the platform. Instagram, you can follow me and DM me as well. I'm very big on there. And, you know, eat through email, my first and last name at gmail.com. Reach out to me, um, ask me any questions, any concerns, um, any directions that you could think of that we could take. You know, I'm very open to feedback as well. Great. Um, and Martel, we'll make sure we, we include, include that information too, like in the, in the written uh, post that we put up. Sure. Yeah. Well, this has been a pleasure. I'm looking for, you know, I, before COVID I didn't do, I never did a podcast that wasn't in person and I got a little wrong. Wow. I just, I love the jam in, in, in real life with people. And, um, I appreciate you kind of get going, going there with me today over the phone. Um, but I hope in the not too distant future, we get an opportunity to, uh, to, to get together in person. Definitely. I agree. I think that that would be fun and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for the time. Um, it continue to, uh, plug away on the, on this next, um, iteration of the, of the SoCo platform when it's ready in the next few weeks, like can't wait to, to, to share that with the community and, um, wish you all the best and, uh, grateful for the time today. And, and you have a, have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too, Zach. Pleasure speaking with you as usual. Awesome. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Have a good one. Cheers, Boston.